tell them here and let them be Well, I got something deep inside of me I can't hide it anymore It needs to be so free There's no Welcome to the show. My guest is the lead singer of Diane, ladies and gents and people around the world. It is Alexis Marsh. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, so I like to tell people how I know my guests. In this case, I do know you. And it's a running theme of the show. I know you through my wife, Jin. And you, the best. Thank you. And you and, uh, you and Jin worked together in film because mm-hmm. you are also a film and television composer along with your duties uh, as a lead singer. How would you describe your sound? I don't know. It's kind of tough. I mean, we basically, uh, I mean, I guess it's kind of like indie, indie rock, a little bit electronic, a little bit folk. Some of the songs are acoustic, you know, acoustic guitar and acoustic instruments. Some of them are uh, using synths, some are more sort of distorted yeah. guitar, rock band kind of stuff. Um, it's a little bit all over, over the place because the al- the one album that we have was a way for t- us to just um, write music that we never get a chance to write when we're scoring for film and television. Right. And yeah. And to sort of yeah, just that we like a, a wide spectrum of music. And so here's a here's a a revelation for me. Uh, I didn't know you could sing. Isn't that uh, weird? Yeah. No, not really. Okay. I didn't know you could <laughs> sing until you sang. Yeah. I feel like I didn't really. There was a long time when in high school I was in choir and I, this will be part of my story, but I was in musicals in high school what? and I sang and I was really into it. And there, uh, at the same time, I started to get really into jazz music. And when you're kind of in, I think a little bit of a, I don't know, I, a certain kind of circle of jazz musicians, they can look down on singers hmm. and I really liked playing the saxophone anyway so I sort of shifted all my energy into practicing saxophone learning saxophone and jazz theory and all that kind of stuff and so for a long time I sort of put it I just was not a singer and was never going to be and then it wasn't until I was working with Sam and a filmmaker wanted a song for a main titles and um they didn't have. They wanted to license from a band that had already sort of committed. They they wanted these other two songs more than they wanted the main titles. They knew they couldn't afford the licenses for all of them, so they wanted us to write a demo. And then they had a friend who was a singer who would replace the vocals. So I had to do the scratch track for this song, and um, and so we spent so much time kind of editing every phrase because I didn't. I couldn't. I hadn't sung in so long. I couldn't really hold a note. It wasn't really in tune. Um, but we got through it and the filmmakers ended up liking the song as it was. And that was Chances, which was the f- sort of first song that we had for uh, an album in like 2011, 2012. And then by 2016, we had just sort of kept going. Like we liked the challenge of writing songs and I liked the challenge of getting back into singing. And I was sort of far, far away from yeah. the like whatever peer pressure I felt to 
be just an instrumentalist, um, that I really liked it. And I liked expressing myself in that way. And I still have a lot of sort of insecurities about singing live. I, I'm, you know, I haven't trained as a singer. And so I'm not able to do these sort of acrobatic singer performance type things like really good singers mm -hmm. can do where they just are so in tune and they sound so great and strong. I yeah. think my voice is pretty, uh, just pretty weak and brittle, I think. And so I have a little bit of a thing about playing live. But in the studio, you have plugins and things to kind of carve out a space for your voice. Um, how, how, yeah, how is it when you are used to controlling your music as far as sound composing and composing for like a movie or show where, you know, you're, you have the time to control the sounds and the music you want versus playing live where you just got to go yeah. go with it like how how, yeah. how have you adjusted to that I mean I think that we're still figuring out how to do that and I think that it's a it's a real source of stress between Sam and I Dan the drummer in the band is totally used to it he loves playing live he loves performing he's so confident that he's never worried about making mistakes and if he does make a mistake it's funny whereas with Sam and I we just feel like oh god we made a mistake like we're gonna fucking fail everything and we should quit and all our <laughs> jazz friends in the audience are like secretly shaking their heads at us they're not but we just feel I think coming from for whatever reason we just took jazz school so seriously that now if it's not perfect we just feel like shameful hmm. um so we still, I mean, I think we're kind of getting out of that because I think rock music generally is like, there's no room for that kind of, I don't know, that sort of self-importance that makes you think you have to be perfect. It's sort of like the, the magic is in the energy of making mistakes and kind of being so into the moment and the story and the mm -hmm. music that if you make a mistake, it's beside the point. You know, you're sort of performing a story and you're putting emotion in it and mistakes aren't even like it's not even a thing that matters yeah. um so but that's being said sam and i are way more comfortable in the studio where we can listen to things over and over and over again right. and kind of correct things um and i want to do more playing live because i want to get more comfortable and i also want to become a better musician where i can play bass or guitar live and sing and sort of hold those in both hands yeah um which is not to say that rock musicians aren't good musicians i'm not trying to say that i'm i'm trying to say that really good musicians don't seem to be hampered by this conservatory type of approach of perfection hmm. which i think we still have hang-ups about okay that's i didn't i like know very little about music just a fan <laughs> but but to know that like that process of uh it's not too in a way dissimilar from myself and like writing where right. you know uh sometimes you just you have to let it let your perfectionistic behaviors go and just be like I just got to like tell a certain story and allow the flaws to right be there sometimes the flaws are what make it great we've right. definitely had that where we sort of like if we had the time to think about it we would say oh that's a flaw let's get rid of that but after you get away from it, you sort of realize like, oh, I think the thing that makes it good is that it's that mistake that we would have totally erased or deleted right. had we had right. time to think about it. Um, well, so I don't know if that's going to lead into the story you're going to tell now, if we're going to stay on the track of music or not, or we're going to talk about fishing or golf. Kind of a little bit. Kind of a yeah, little bit yeah, about yeah. music? Okay. Not, so... not a band way, but a music 
definitely involves music. Uh, oh, but yeah, I did want to say, uh, yeah, I didn't know it was your voice when I heard the Diane album. And mm. it was, I was like, whoa, that was great. Sweet. Yeah, Thanks. Yeah. I was just like, oh, is that Alexis? And then I was like, wait, it is. That's the reaction I had. Sweet. Because I'm, nice I'm, I'm always like a, a person's uh, speaking voice and their singing voice sometimes can be different right yeah you know? and like you're like oh that's the singing voice wow okay right. yeah yeah and uh, there's also this kind of i feel like for me anyway there's this mysticism around the voice when it's sung and so if i hear someone i know like have only known as like a talker we we're friends we're in conversation then i hear their voice on an album it just sort of feels like oh you transformed into like a god or something uh that's you that like that's yeah it's i had i had a similar kind of reaction where i was like what <laughs> is this the same person like, yeah, yeah, yeah i had one of those moments yeah and it was really fun um so anyways uh let's get into your get into uh, untold it. untold story yeah yeah so uh my story is that when i was i went to jazz school in toronto and then went to louisville kentucky which is where i went to grad when i went to grad school i went to undergrad in toronto went to grad school in kentucky to study composing and i had sort of vaguely had an idea that i wanted to be a film composer but it seemed just too lofty a goal to admit to myself so um i sort of thought oh i'll be a big band arranger i need to learn how to write for large ensembles <clears throat> and i went to louisville to do that but while i was there i sort of kind of made a little bit of noise of uh you know i think i might be interested in writing for movies and i met someone there who worked in commercials or someone who knew that i was interested in that and connected me with a composer who uh, worked with people in Los Angeles at one time, lived in Los Angeles at one time, lived in the UK and worked in film music and wrote. Okay. And so he sort of took me under his wing a little bit. He was, you know, sort of went, came back to Louisville because his mother was sick and he just had sort of settled in Louisville, which was his hometown. But he kind of guided me through the process of like, here's how you can get started in film music. And um, one of them was to become an assistant. And I, at the time, didn't want to stay in the States, and I didn't, I wasn't ready to move to Los Angeles, so I just naturally went back to Toronto. Um, I loved the city, and there, there was a film industry, or there is a film and television industry in Toronto, so I knew that there was more chance there that I could sort of get started somehow. So I moved back and started looking for ways to work in music and film in some way. Um, and I ended up kind of finding that through there was like an organization, maybe you have the same thing. It's like writers, maybe not the writer's guild. Cause I know you really have to go through a lot to get into the writer's guild, but it's something like you pay $70 and you get invited to screenings and there's Q and A's with writers at the end of it. Like that kind of kind of networking uh, okay, sure. sort of thing. Yeah. They had one of those in Toronto for composers. <clears throat> so I joined that, went to like all the workshops I could go to, tried to meet people. Um, and they advertised for, they sent out an email saying that, the CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Company, is looking for a music coordinator to work on this show called How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria, which is that song from The Sound of Music. And the CBC was partnering with Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, really useful group, and they were going to put on this reality show where I think it was 20 women or something like that were whittled down to 10 women, and then they were going to do these, like, broadway type american idol sort of performances okay 
And so each week they would have to perform some kind of song and the judges would judge it and it would sort of be a little bit of dance, a little bit of like, like how they present themselves, a little bit of acting, a little bit of singing. And so I got this job, thankfully, and it was my dream job. I sort of went in and it was the first time I had seen like a production office and, you know, like you see sort of the posters of television shows, you yeah. know, of on the wall and it's all very magical. Wait, uh, real quick. Did mm -hmm. you cold apply? then for the job through, I, through yeah, hearing I, about it? I guess so. I mean, I, I didn't okay. know anyone that worked for the production. I just sort of submitted my resume to the okay. production through like the... Um, through this composer network. Yeah, I can't okay. remember what the what the acronym was of it. Um, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, point. but okay, you basically a cold... Uh, just submitted cold, a, cold a resume. Yeah, okay, and I it. think that... I don't, I don't know that there were many other applicants because it's kind of... It's a, like, first of all, there's not a lot of people in this organization. And so if that was their sort of pool of like, how do we, yeah. how do we find, how do we fill this position? I just doubt that there was very many applicants, <laughs> thankfully. And so, uh, so yeah, I applied, went in for an interview um, and met with this woman who is still someone I totally idolize. And she was kind of like, um, not, she was not unlike, um, the like Devil Wears Prada character. Oh, Anne Wintour. Yeah, yeah. Well, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. Yeah. Playing someone like Anna Wintour. Yeah, yeah. Um, just very serious, and and you just sort of got the sense when you got in the room of like, don't fucking make a stupid joke. Just like somehow portray that you will be competent and not an idiot fan, and uh, that you know how to be organized and serious. And so that sort of set the tone of like. First of all, meeting any, like anyone who's like that, I'm sort of like, oh, I fucking want to work with you because I'm also very serious and I also <laughs> want to get things done. So I really wanted the job, certainly after meeting her. Um, and I think I had heard afterwards because I became friends with uh, the one of the sort of like associate um, producer people. And I had sort of been, I, I don't know if I asked about it, but he sort of said, you know, it was between you and this person who was really into musical theater. And she was sort of thinking like, we should go with that person because they're really into musical theater. Um, but that he had sort of said, I think you want someone who's like into it, but not that into it. Like you've got to have someone who can sort of like register that it's a job and that you're not just sort of there right, right, to right. watch musical numbers. Um, Anyway, uh, so I got the job and I had been reading, this is kind of an aside, but I think is really important. I was maybe like 24, 25. Okay. Um, and one of my first sort of like big jobs working for a company, I had had jobs working as an assistant where it was pretty informal, but also very serious. Um, but this was one of the first ones where it was like, there were a couple people to approve my hiring and like it was a thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I had been reading these books about like how to get from like college to the real world or whatever. And they all sort of said like, you've got to ask for, you've got to negotiate your pay, but that's terrifying. And, uh, but I had sort of gone for it. I can't remember. I thankfully had someone who was like, just ask for like $200 more per week. And um, not knowing that they had like actually been kind of leaning towards someone else, I had asked for $200 more per <laughs> week and got it. Oh. And I don't know how I presented myself or whatever, but I was definitely of the like, don't do it. Like, they're not going to hire you if you ask for more money. It's like, 
just be cool, take the money. It's already like way more than you've ever made. Um, but at the same time, I was kind of like, but I'm going to be here like 24 hours a day. I'm basically like saying goodbye to the next four or five months of my life. And yeah, maybe it's more in more money than I've ever made, but that doesn't mean it's worth it for you to commit like that much time and just sure. let's see. But anyway, I got it, which is to say, always ask because you really never know. And yeah. if they say no, then you just, okay. There you go. That's fine. All, okay. the, all the job hunters out there. Little, yeah. Little tip from Alexis. I feel like I love hearing about people who ask for more and get it because usually you do. I feel like usually you do. Occasionally you'll get a reason why and then at least you understand. Yeah. Um, but I have also heard that most of the time employers know that they're they're going to be asked for more and so they offer a little bit lower and they usually have right, right. more. Yeah. Anyway, um, okay, so I got this job and it was basically uh, taping music, like sheet music together, sheet music together, um, organizing it for, they had a, a small live orchestra, which was very cool and kind of rare that, um, I mean, I think American Idol does have a live band, but this was like strings, woodwinds, like a little uh, musical orchestra pit. They were really like, they were doing it right. And so they had a conductor for that, and they had this band of maybe like, I don't know, maybe 20 musicians. Um, and so what they needed was someone to kind of be a go-between between between the executive producers that are running the show and someone who knows music enough that can translate to the music director because they were all coming over from England. Um, And they were kind of like West End. There there was this guy named Simon Lee who was from the West End musical director. And he was going to be in town and he was going to be there for the run of the show and he would be coaching the girls, um, women, I should say. They were like, 20 like maybe 19 to 20 early 20s um coaching these women and helping them prepare for their performances and um at some point andrew lloyd weber would be coming to the show for like the final episode and so they wanted to make sure that they had someone on staff that knew what music was because the rest were all contract musicians the conductor didn't work for the show he was like kind of i mean he worked for the show but he was kind of called in as a contract person right needed a regular day-to-day person. Yeah, they wanted yeah. someone there like every day in case they had music questions, basically. Yeah. Um, so as I think back on it, I think like, wow, it was kind of an unnecessary role. Like they could have got along without me, I think probably fairly easy. The orchestrator, who is the person who says, okay, we're going to this week, um, this singer is going to sing uh, Life is a Cabaret. And so uh, they've got to take that song and arrange it for the instrumentation that they have. Um, and they have to find like what's the intro, what are who's playing the intro melody, and what are the chords, and so they mm-hmm. sort of decide all that stuff and arrange it so it sounds good in in that band. And he was a guy that was living in London, and he was going to be like shipping parts um, by PDF or emailing parts by PDF. My job was to print those, tape them together, so the musicians didn't have to like fold pages on TV and like be all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And then basically just like put them on the stand. Yeah. And if anyone needed something or if anyone was like, what's a chord? I could talk to them about it. Sure. So that was my job. Um, And I fucking loved it. Like to this day, it's my dream job. It was like going into the CBC building, which to me in Canada growing up, 
and watching the CBC all the time and it being sort of like the home of all these like Canadian shows. Yeah. It just sort of felt like, oh, I, this is just like what I want to do. I want to work for the CBC. I want to be around CBC shows. And I would walk through the lobby, quick aside, the lobby had this giant poster of this guy named Gian Gomeshi. And I don't know if you remember, Gian Gomeshi was kind of like the first soldier to fall in the Me Too stuff a couple years ago. I think a lot of Americans are sort of like, I don't know who that is. Yeah, I, I, but my Canadian listeners are loving <laughs> this right this now. Is, yeah, this yeah. is like 2007, 2008. And so I walk through the lobby and it's this huge atrium. Like on my first day, I basically have like a suitcase just like Maria in The Sound of Music of like twirling in the lobby of like, I'm at the CBC, where's my desk? And I was so fucking excited. And um, so then I go and I get started and I'm just sort of starstruck, not because there's any celebrities around, but just because it's that Sure, it's the, the building where the quote, the magic happens or all yes. the things you grew up watching. Yeah, the, yeah I get it. Yeah, sure, yeah, sure. yeah. And so basically I spent um, the next like few months doing that and sort of trying to be available to anyone. And I just like got there early, stayed late. I was super into it. Um, and I guess I did like enough of a good job that the EP uh, was like, <clears throat> Andrew Lloyd Webber's coming to town. We need you to be his person. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And so I was in musicals, as I said, when I was in high school. And I did like Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I think maybe like I don't know if anyone attempted Phantom of the Opera in our community and I don't know if this happens in America but in my hometown in Winnipeg our high school every year did like a big production like a musical I think that still happens like did your high school do a musical yeah and you wanted I, to be in it right uh, me personally <laughs> no but uh yeah if musicals were a thing for sure in american high schools yes yeah absolutely. okay of course absolutely like, yeah. high school musical is not a totally huge show for no reason uh well anyway it was the same in canada probably now that i know that it, yeah actually no, was a, a thing, big yeah. thing yeah Anyway, um, so every year I would audition for the musical and I was in the musical and that was like such a dream come true in grade like 10, you were in kind of like a bit part 11, grade 11, you got like a little bigger part in grade 12, you were like kind of could get the lead, um, which I don't think I ever got. And uh, I sang like Mother Teresa in The Sound of Music and that was kind of like a disappointment. But for however, however I did it, I was able to sing Climb Every Mountain I think I must have sounded terrible. But anyway, so I was in musicals. I knew all yeah. about musicals. So when they said Andrew Lloyd Webber's coming to town, we'd like you to sort of make sure he has everything he needs. Um, I was very excited about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, and just uh, just a quick, for the listeners out there, Andrew Lloyd Webber is like the icon of musicals. Yeah, musical theater. I think of a certain kind of, it, I mean, I guess so, yeah, like I, well, it would yeah. be, it, for someone who's like really into musicals, I'd love to have a conversation about it because I still feel like I'm probably a bit of an outsider. I would think that like... Well, he did the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is, I, it's a high, it's like if, uh, it's like if I met Kobe Bryant. That's a bad example. <laughs> if you like Kobe Bryant, yeah. That, that's a bad example. Yeah, but 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 the, probably the the ratio of like big to you in 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 the world of music he 
is an elite class. Everyone knows him. Yeah, in the and world. And he's made music. some iconic material and yes. they want you to work for that yeah. person. Yes. Yes. And Jesus Christ Superstar remains my favorite musical, a flawless piece of work. I think it's so good. And so for that reason alone, I was super excited to meet him. And you're you were the serious hire. Mm-hmm. And now you're getting tested for your fandom because you're about to be kind of like an idol, right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. I kind of feel like my seriousness like fell away when I started telling this story right now. You know? that, but I'm like saying, I, like, I held on to it until like yeah. right now, and now I'm gushing about it. Yeah, but now, now like you're back then, 24, 25, super serious about work, trying to make, make a career for yourself. Right, yeah. And you was the reason you got picked and now you're asked to basically fangirl out or try not to don't fangirl out you're trying not to but secretly you're about to meet one of your (laughs) one of your musical yeah i mean i didn't have any scores for him to sign or anything like that but it was cool you know it was cool to sort of like okay i'm gonna meet this person um sorry so keep going sorry yeah. I just wanted to... so i can't remember the first time i met him really it just was sort of i have like three or four memories and one of them is so he came to town and it was like even even if you weren't a fan of mr weber uh you like you were sort of reverent everyone was kind of like i was in the building right 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 i'm just coming and so but, but it was kind of comical for all of us because I think like in the production, most most people that I think work in production aren't really fan. They like, they're so used to working with like celebrities or whatever that the sheen is worn off. It's like a job and these people are working their job and I'm working my job and like no big deal. Um, and so, but but there, it was kind of this, just this funny kind of climate, I think. And so we had this meeting, this like production meeting and Elvira Kurt was the writer, one of the writers on the show. And she's this insanely funny comedian. Like the show did just so much right. First of all, they didn't want the girls to be competitive or catty. So they weren't going after any of that. They were like trying to support everybody and make it just like a clean, good, fun thing. Sure. But also they hired Elvira Kurt to write for the show and she's so good and funny. So one of the things, this isn't the main part of the story, I'm getting to that, Um, but one of the things that I constantly remember is that we were in this production meeting and I think all of us were just sort of like looking at like the next person because the executive producer hadn't showed up yet and we're sitting with Andrew Lloyd Webber and like nobody's really talking and like what the fuck are we supposed to be doing? This is like, he's very important. Um, And we're all sort of just like tense and Elvira sort of, interrupts the silence to say um would you want a cup of coffee and he was like oh yeah sure i'll have a cup of coffee thank you and so she goes over to the coffee machine but it's not as if we've got like anything fancy there's no curigs or anything like that at that point it's basically just sort of like one of those metal like cylinder things that you like pump down and it's kind Mm. of awkward Yeah, yeah so she like does this thing still pretty silent and she comes back with this styrofoam cup that seems like everyone can sense that it's very sort of like non- Andrew Lloyd Webber, who we all know is like drinking out of crystal, you know, on in every other place, right? And we've got like this like paltry styrofoam cup. And so she hands it to him and it's all very serious. And she was like, uh, Mr. Webber, our finest Royal Dalton styrofoam for you. 
And he sort of takes and is like, thank you. Thank you very much. And like, nobody's fucking laughing. And Royal Dalton is like fancy China, you know, like my grandma collected Royal Dalton China. Um, And it was like grasshoppers, like nobody's picking up on it. He's certainly not laughing at it. Although I don't think out of any kind of like malice or like impatience. So that's just like one little aside about how strange it was to sort of be with him in a room um so anyway so he's there and i think this is like maybe he's there for like four days it seems like much longer but it's like the finale is on sunday yeah and he came in on thursday and so um we meet him on thursday something like that next day and i'm supposed to like go with him with the driver to pick him up from his hotel every morning get him to the studio for whatever rehearsals, like where he meets the women and um, just sort of be around him in case he needs yeah, anything. Yeah, wow. Okay. So, um, so the next day, I can't remember what happened, but we had to like, he and Simon, the musical director, who was this very brilliant musical director, but also the kind of guy that was useless in any other, like, any other thing like he's so good at getting the best sort of performance out of these women and he was so great with them and is the kind of thing where you sort of meet him and you think like wow he's really sort of all over the place and Mm. is any like is this is this going to be a disaster Um, but then he'd sit down at the piano play exactly what he needs to play the women would sing beautifully. They would be better for it. He would know exactly what to say. You know what you should do is like lift up your chin. And when you get to this part, this has got to be a little bit more like this. And it would, he would just make everything better musically. But outside of those, he was just a little bit of a loose cannon. And Mm -hmm. so he was another person that I was sort of uh, trying to make sure he was happy or if he needed anything, a rehearsal room with a piano, all those kinds of things. So, um, so we the we get to uh, some day where he wants to go for lunch and it ends up being around like ten thirty eleven so it's brunch and uh, he says oh Simon I want to talk to you about this thing why don't you come with me and we'll go for lunch and I just happen to sort of be in the car and so uh, I go with them and they go to this very fancy restaurant and Andrew invites me for lunch. Oh. Amazing. Yeah. So of course I go and um, he orders this very like fancy sounding bottle of wine and they have eggs benedict with crab or whatever fancy rich people eat. Sure. And um, so we all have brunch and uh, the check comes. And so the check is sort of like in the middle, kind of like equally away from all of us. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And Simon goes, I'll get it. And then Andrew goes, no, no, I'll get it. And I sort of feel like, you're serious. You're a serious person. You should offer to get it. They're not going to let you, but you should offer to get it. You're you're a peer. (laughs) You're a peer at this table with Andrew Lloyd Webber and the musical director for countless East West End shows. Um, So... I offer to get it. And both of them like take their hand off the bill immediately and go, okay, great. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) There's no argument or anything. Wow. And I sort of like my hand starts shaking and I grab the check and sort of like, I don't have a credit card from the production or anything. Like this is going on my debit card because I don't even have a fucking credit card. Um, And 
the bill is three hundred and fifty dollars, something like that. Yeah, I'm twenty four. I asked for that raise, but like that doesn't cover that. And no, 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 no. Yeah, and so I sort of was like, you, you just have to pay it. You have to pay it. And I'm sort of panicking because I'm trying to calculate like, okay, do I have enough money in my account? Like, like none of it. I can't have the thing rejected. I just uh, whatever. So I just sort of like sign the bill and with the tip, I had never calculated tip on $350 brunch <laughs> before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I put down $20. Yeah, it's pretty low. <laughs> it's really low. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very low. Yeah. Um, so I really was sort of like, $20 is a lot for a tip. But I'm sort of panicky, and they're, like, gathering up their stuff and going, and I'm sort of, like, head down above this bill, like, what the fuck do you tip? Like, do you do you actually do, like, 10, 20% when it's this high, really? And um, and so I just, like, put down $20, and I couldn't really – I couldn't do the math. I was, like, too overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. And so we leave, and I get in the car, and I sort of, like, like it's okay. It's going to be fine. Like, I bought lunch for Andrew Lloyd Webber, and – that's a story I can tell one day, this day, today, right <laughs> today. now. <laughs> um, I like truth be told, I immediately went to the production coordinator and was like, "Hey, I did something really stupid and I can't afford it." And she was sort of like, "What?" And she was really great. She, I mean, all the people that worked on the show were really wonderful. And I sort of explained it to her, and she was like, "All right, give me the receipt and don't do that again." And so they like reimbursed me for the money. Oh, that's but nice. then I got home and I was kind of like, fuck, what um what did I tip that person? I don't think it was enough. I don't really know how much yeah. you tip someone. So anyway, I figured it out and was like, Oh yeah, that's pretty low. And then called the restaurant and said, Hey, I was there earlier today. Um I had this like very large bill and I just wasn't thinking and I didn't I didn't I didn't tip enough and I'm wondering if I can like can I just like pay a little bit more somehow to like tip yeah yeah more and they were like oh was the bill like where what time was it whatever and I was kind of like it was um it was with Andrew Lloyd Webber yeah. <laughs> like the table with Andrew Lloyd Webber at it and they were sort of like took a minute and were like oh yeah it was like this bill or whatever and so I just like managed to i don't know i mean i must have had a credit card i don't know how i paid over the phone but i just like paid i mean this is pre-venmo it was pre-venmo for sure it was 2007 2008 yeah so you had to actually go over there or give your credit card number on the phone maybe i did i think i did i think i vaguely remember going and it was one of these like modern hotels that were like all just very austere Mm. and i actually did go back to the restaurant now now that I'm thinking about it and just like ran my little debit card through they, and they charged another, or I asked them to put down another $20, which still is kind of low, isn't it? Like $40. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't want to bust out a calculator right now, but I mean, I yeah. Yeah. Because like 10, 10% would be like $35. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're not mathematicians, yeah. but it was that low. sounds low. It was low. It sounds like you tipped low twice. But I, also, <laughs> <laughs> but I also feel like the waiters there were like, "What are you twelve? 
just go. Don't worry. We're going to be fine. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like shameful that like someone let you pay for a $350 brunch. They, wow. Uh, I wonder if they thought that you were paying on behalf of the production. They must have. Of course, they must have. Right? Yeah, of course. But, yeah. They must have. Of course. I mean, like, I think, yeah, probably a guy like Andrew Lloyd Webber, when he works on a production, there's someone there to go, like, Andrew doesn't pay for anything, you know, whatever. And I guess I maybe had thought the same thing of, like, wait, we should be paying for him. And, but I don't have a production credit card. Nobody really, like, gave me anything like that. So I think probably they assumed Uh, that, but... I don't know. Isn't that the story to me uh, is like human nature in that you could be Andrew Lloyd Webber and the other, the other gentleman, Simon Lee. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Right? Simon Lee. Yeah. Elite people in their field. You're not going to turn down a free meal. It's <laughs> true. You know what I mean? Like they, they ordered a $350 brunch Clearly, they could pay for it. Yeah. And they took the free meal. Yeah. Because you, you threw it out there. I'd like to think that if I ever made as much money as Andrew Lloyd Webber and worked for, like, a Canadian production company, I'd be like, honey, no. Your production company, like, needs this money. Well. Let me just pay for... There's no need to... And I bought... I. I ordered this wine. I'm the one who ordered this fucking bottle, this $80 bottle of wine. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even, there's like a lot, because presumably they're older gentlemen at this point. Yeah. Yes, they it's, were. You know, at a certain point, like everyone, I only know certain people to always be old. And I feel like Andrew Lloyd Webber is someone I only. <laughs> he was born. Yeah. I only know him as old. Right? <laughs> he and was so born the back age when he is you, right now. Back when you worked for him, uh, you're certainly, I'm sure he could tell you were, I mean, you were an assistant, right? So clearly you were not too many years out of school or whatever and you're. Or not, or like they're so totally isolated and disconnected that he can't even fathom that this person might be totally broke and not able to afford this and like, let me not even go there. Let me just you're fine, they're fine, let me just pay for this, you know? Yeah, I guess And the, just the idea of, like, well, sure, even if not the production, you, I, you can, anyone has $350 in their savings. <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's true, too, the, the other <laughs> way of it. To buy my wine and crab. Uh, that's <laughs> really, that was a very uh, entertaining kind of tale. Ooh, I'm glad there's a coda. Oh, yes. I love coda. Best part. <laughs> There's a little bit of a coda. Yes. So uh, a couple codas, actually. So, uh, yeah, so we finished the production, and um, Andrew gave me a box set of, like, his sort of, I don't know, this is lovely bo- box set that he sort of signed. And oh, nice. what did it say on it? I don't even know where it is anymore. Oh, no. I think maybe in my parents' basement or something. I have it somewhere. I must. I mean, I wouldn't be such a fool as to throw out. No, you can't. Yeah. Anyway, it said uh, something like, you know, to to Alexis, all the best. Sure. Yeah. Something like that, which was a very nice touch um, because he was actually like a very lovely person. And I was able to ask him about like, 
how did you like where did it, where did the Jesus Christ superstar come from? How did you think of doing a musical like that? Um, it's so to me it seems so radical and also so beautiful and just pulls like these different themes out of the story of Christ that we never really see from like the church, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and how did you? Yeah. What? What? What was it? And he was really forthcoming about that, which was basically that he was like, I just, you know, I thought Jesus Christ sounded like a melody, and so I just like <laughs> read. It. it was like, I mean, I, I don't think I really am recreating this well, but he, he just like he was just like, it's nothing, it's just an idea I had. Um, so he was really lovely, and then. Um, the producer, uh, the the CEO of his group came into town for the last thing, and he was also nice to me. And he had sort of said, like, are you going to the premiere of the musical? Like, I worked on the show, but that doesn't guarantee you a ticket to see the actual musical. So the girl who wins, the woman who wins, sorry, the woman who won, she, uh, the prize was that you get the role of Maria for The Sound of Music that's going to be on the sort of, like, Mervyn... Broadway kind of equivalent in Toronto yeah. for like a six month run run or something. So like a great prize. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the premiere for like the, the winner of the contest yeah. uh, was like some months later. And it was after that I finished that show that I sort of realized like, Oh, I can't go back to, I don't even know what job I was going to get, you know, as a composer, as a musician, you don't just apply for a job somewhere. There are none. And what I'm qualified to do is to write music. And there's not going to be another music coordinator job. You know, no one really needs one. Um, and so I sort of knew that, and also nobody was returning my calls for, you know, trying to connect with producers or whatever. I had no experience. I had no real nothing. Yeah. Um, so after that show, that whole experience being like, just solidifying, like, yeah, I want to work in television. I just... I love the create the creation of it. I love the people who work in TV. I love having something that people watch on the television and being part mm -hmm. of that community. Mm -hmm. um, it was sort of was like, oh, I'm definitely doing this. And that's when I sort of decided I have to go to Los Angeles. So I planned this trip and came out here, met up with like one or two people that I knew that were living in Los Angeles and was kind of like from the moment I landed felt like Los Angeles was the place that I wanted to be. And I sort of promised myself that six months later, I would be moving to Los Angeles in some way. It was just something about the experience hmm. and my determination and the city itself. I just, I just really loved it. And so while I was there, I just sort of wandered into a like anthropology and bought a dress for the premiere and then went back to um, Toronto, went to the premiere and felt like that was the kind of the promise of like how I connect these two experiences of like it, the job allowed me to take that trip to Los Angeles, helped me afford the ticket, helped me afford the dress to go to the premiere and then kind of meet those people and sort of go like, yeah, they're doing it. Yeah, and yeah. they've found their own way to having a job full time in this industry. And now I have to go and do my own thing and find my way of being in the industry. So after that, six months later, I had gotten a grant from the County Council of the Arts to go to Los Angeles and study for about three months um, and I also applied to USC and got in. Yeah, and now you are doing it. Your last credit of note, uh, Animal Kingdom, TNT. Yeah. Uh, amongst, actually, oh, many. But we'll, <laughs> yeah. shout, we'll shout that one out because it's 
probably the Sweet, most yeah. the most the most current in addition to uh your album yeah for with your band Diane. uh so let me ask you one final uh question um how do you feel now that you've told the world that you paid for andrew lloyd weber's lunch when he probably should have paid for it himself <laughs> right i mean i wish that i had actually paid for it and didn't get reimbursed because it you know it's not like I'd be out $350 now. You know, I would have recouped it somehow or I would have just... I think you're fine. Thanks. Yeah, I, I don't think you have to worry about that. But that's kind of funny that, that that's going through your mind right now that you're, you, <laughs> yeah. you, kind of, you kind of felt like you chickened out of going broke. But I, Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be a better story to just be like, yeah, I was I had no savings and I paid for his meal and was like, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. I know I'm going to be fine. To have the confidence to just know that it doesn't, like, what's $350, even if you don't have it? What is that? It's nothing. I have an experience here. To value that over the dollar, I feel like that's a lesson I'm constantly learning. You know, I mean, in, in my own sort of, like, little tiny anxieties about, like, yeah. how much are we spending on this vacation, you know, now that I have, like, a kid and a family, or how much are we spending on this kind of thing that is actually the thing we'll remember rather than, like, how sure. much is in our savings or whatever. Like, savings is important. Okay. But I also, I feel like I, I, I look past what an experience can bring for this sort of like security of like, am I doing everything right? I mean, that's a really nice, sweet answer. Uh, I, I think it's cool. You got the reimbursement. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> like, sweet. Kind of paid a little bit for the dress, I guess. Yeah. That you could like say that a little bit. The dress wasn't that expensive, but yeah, I mean, helped with the flight probably. Shout out, shout out to, Toronto and people Canadians. Yeah, Toronto's amazing. Canada's amazing. Everybody yeah. go. So yeah, on that note, uh, let's thank Alexis Marsh. Thanks for having me. For being on the show and uh, shout out to Canada. Canada. Okay. Talk soon. Bye. Hey, if you'd like to know when our next new episode comes in, it's easy. You can subscribe for best story I never told. That's right on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher.